Welcome to another informative episode of Alberta Doctors Digest, brought to you by the Alberta Medical Association. You've tuned in to one of the many stories from our online publication at add.albertadoctors.org. We're the flagship source of information and opinion of the Alberta Medical Association, advancing patient-centered quality care by advocating for and supporting physician leadership and wellness. Let's get started. Well, hello everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Alberta Doctors Digest podcast brought to you by the Alberta Medical Association. As always, I'm your host, Editor-in-Chief Marvin Polis. For this episode, I'm in studio, and joining me over the phone line from Calgary is Dr. Heidi Fell. Heidi is a family physician in Calgary, and she's also the chair of the Informatics Committee at the Alberta Medical Association. We're here to talk about virtual care. Heidi, what's on your mind? Thanks for having me, Marvin. I think there's a few things that I'd like AMA members to know that we're up to on their behalf. And the first thing is that we know that virtual care is has been an important part of your practices over the last year and a half or so, uh, as COVID has been part of our lives. And we also know that virtual care is likely here to stay. Now, for some specialties, virtual care has not brought financial burdens with it, but for many specialties and for primary care especially, virtual care has brought uh, decreased remuneration rates and some financial strain to practices. So the AMA has been tirelessly working in the background trying to get virtual care rates improved. We continue to work on this even after the non-ratification of the agreement. Discussions continue between the Alberta Medical Association and government in trying to improve the virtual care code. So that, that's the first thing, is that we get that virtual care has been painful in financial ways and often other ways, and we're working to fix that. The second piece is that uh, virtual care is here to stay, and so we've been working with the college and with Alberta Health and with AHS and uh, trying to develop a virtual care strategy for what virtual care looks like going into the future. And so we've been working in a part of a college working group as to what this looks like from those sorts of a perspective. And we've also been working within the AMA on sort of our own strategy as to what virtual care may look like post-pandemic. And we've been getting some input from the sections and from various docs and from the letters that go back to the president uh, and using all of that information to inform our approach. Heidi, great. As this system is designed looking into the future, there must be issues related to continuity of care. Can you tell me about that? Yeah. So when I talked about the strategy that we're developing, continuity of care is one of the main pillars that we're building the strategy on. So there's been lots of concern about corporate entities coming into Alberta and providing virtual care where the family doc for the patient or the specialist that cares for the patient on an ongoing basis has no idea that this care ever occurred. And as we all know, that's not optimal for care from a patient's perspective. We know that continuity of care is really important to outcomes for patients. And we also know that that's probably not ideal from the way we want to use the funding within our system. That was a concern that came out loud and clear in the consultations around the tenors of agreement. So the AMA is building its strategy based on the idea that continuity of care is the critical component 
to a sustainable integrated virtual care system. So you can't have virtual care that's just occurring, you know, random phone calls that nobody else ever finds out about. You need to have virtual care that is integrated with a system where they can also have a physical examination if they need to, their specialist that takes regular care of them or their family doc that takes regular care of them. Uh, knows about what's gone on and can act if there's something that needs to be acted upon. And the information from that visit goes back to the patient's medical home when appropriate, which is most of the time. So we're really conscious that we want to build a system that is fully integrated into the care that we're providing now so that patients are safer and that we're better stewards of the funds that we're looking after. So even in a virtual world, the patient really needs a medical home, correct? That's correct. Yep. We know from the literature that unless you're a smoker of more than 15 cigarettes per day, the best thing that you can do as a patient for your health is to have a continuous family physician. Great. Now, in the future, how does virtual care kind of intersect with sometimes there being a need for a physical exam? So that's a great question, Marvin. And I think with COVID, we've learned you can do a lot of things without a physical exam, but there are certain things like I would argue abdominal pain that has never been assessed before that would need a physical exam to be part of a complete assessment. There's also, frankly, times practicing as a family doc where I have more vulnerable patients. They might be elderly, socially isolated, anything like that, where it's really important that I just lay eyes on them. For example, I had a patient that I hadn't seen for several months and they came in and they lost a dramatic amount of weight. That turned out to be something that was really important for me to investigate. So definitely that physical examination is a key part of our skills as medical clinicians. And it's important that virtual care be integrated with a system where that physical exam can be provided. Now, you can do some parts of a physical exam over video, for example. So if you're doing parts of a mental status exam, for example, you can see if the patient's making you know, eye contact to some extent, if they look like they're well-dressed, if they're Thoughts are coherent, those sorts of things. Sometimes you can see rashes over video, often not well, but sometimes. But there are things where you really need to touch the patient. So that's another reason why an integrated system of virtual care is really important so that we don't just end up seeing patients virtually on the phone, for example, and then sending them to emergency when sending them to a family physician, for example, or a coordinated after-hours clinic that provides an in-person service when required wouldn't be a better option. So I think it's important that we, we keep that aspect of medicine in mind as we're designing our virtual care system going forward. Okay, now something that occurs to me is that when I'm making an appointment with my doctor, I may not actually know whether it's more appropriate for it to be virtual or in person. Are you giving some thought to that? Sure, and actually the Alberta Medical Association did a survey on our albertapatients.ca tool, and we actually asked patients about this. Interestingly, the patient's decisions about appropriateness generally mirrored the kind of topics that physicians feel are appropriate, things where a physical exam was not required in most cases. Patients have somewhat of an innate sense for this already, but we've learned through the COVID pandemic that sometimes we have to give our booking staff guidance as to what sort of things 
are appropriate or not appropriate for virtual care. And so any system that we design, there needs to be a way to A, educate the public about this, B, re-triage to an in-person appointment if the virtual is not appropriate, and C, avoid too many of those re-triages after the fact. Because that that is important. And in the pandemic, we do a lot of things virtually because people are in isolation or something like that. That may not be the preferred first contact for patients after the pandemic. So we really need to think about, do we want to always talk to patients on the phone first? Probably not. We probably want to have a mix of things. As an example, one of my learning experiences early in the pandemic occurred around a patient that was in isolation because of travel, and she was calling me about back and thigh pain. When I assessed her over the phone, I thought she was having a back problem, but I was uncertain enough that I brought her in despite her being in isolation. She got the full PPE and isolation treatment. It ended up being a tumor in her hip that was eating her hip joint rather than a problem with her back and a nerve in her back. So that's something that I would have missed if I'd only done virtual for her and the in-person appointment was really important. Now, it seems to me, Heidi, that another benefit of this sort of approach in some cases is actually travel where somebody's out of the country. And in fact, uh, this did occur to me uh, before the pandemic. I was in New York, became very sick, and I needed to see a doctor. I would have actually preferred to do a virtual appointment with my own doctor, but that wasn't an option at the time. So is this the sort of thing that you would be looking towards in the future where a Canadian patient, an Alberta patient, is maybe out of the country but can actually connect with their own family doctor? Yeah, so that's a really interesting question, Marvin. Certainly I've encountered that with my patients in that they've been elsewhere or they've been in D.C. or something and we've been able to connect and solve a problem that I already had the history for and it was a relatively simple thing for me to deal with but might have been quite complex for a new physician to deal with. The complicating factor there is that we have a web of licensing and legal and malpractice requirements that we also have to deal with. So that's one of the things that the AMA is just starting to explore with the CMPA and the CPSA to say, well, how does this work? This is a new situation that hasn't really been a thing before. So do I need to have a license in BC if my patient's located in BC? What about a patient in the States? Well, then my malpractice insurer may or may not cover me depending on the circumstances. And so there's a lot of complexity to work out around travel outside of the province for both physicians and patients that we're working to clarify now. Understood. Thank you for explaining that. Well, Heidi, uh, it's probably time that we wrap up, but is there anything you'd like to say in summary? Um, I think the one thing that we haven't touched on is just the evidence for virtual care. One of the things that is reassuring to physicians is that in the literature, virtual care, when provided as part of a continuous integrated system, is at least as effective and certainly not less effective than in-person care. And so I think we can be reassured that we are providing quality and safe care to our patients when we provide virtual care in that kind of environment. Now, the pandemic has 
created some compromises in some of those areas, which might affect the quality of care. But I'm really hoping that we're not going to be living in a pandemic environment for too much longer and that we'll be able to revert to some things that make sense on their own and are not being done because of the pandemic. Also, I just want to remind people that, you know, the AMA is really interested in hearing from you. So there are a number of ways that you can get in touch with the AMA. Perhaps the easiest one to talk about here is just to email the president. Anything that is informatics related will also get back to me. Well, Heidi, thank you for joining me and uh, explaining all of this. And certainly all the best as you work out all of these issues on behalf of AMA members. Thanks very much for having me, Marvin. Thanks again for tuning in to Alberta Doctors Digest, brought to you by the Alberta Medical Association. This has been just one of the many stories from the current issue of our online publication. You can read the entire publication at add.albertadoctors.org. See you next time.